What's up, everyone? This is episode number 83 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, our NBA Finals matchup is set now. And I know the first game will take place right after I record this. But no matter who wins that game, I can say I am very excited for this matchup. I think it's going to be a great series. I think that the Lakers, despite having LeBron James and Anthony Davis, have some serious flaws. We all know that. I think a team like the Heat will really be able to pick those apart. But at the same time, the Lakers have LeBron James and Anthony Davis. And I know that people have very strong opinions about LeBron James. I know, you know, for a lot of people, he hasn't won as many titles as they feel like they should have. But making it to 10 NBA Finals is incredible. Enjoy his career while it's here. You might not like all of the theatrics or the flopping or the whining. and You know, there are parts of that that I definitely can't stand as well. But we'll never see someone just like LeBron James. And, uh, you know, I speak from somebody, you guys know kind of when I started following the game. I was fortunate to have seen, to have watched Jordan's career from 1995 on. You know, I missed the early years, unfortunately. Had to watch those later on. But I saw the end when it happened and when Michael Jordan retired, um, at least the retirement um, after the Utah series, there was this gap that we were waiting for someone to fill. And even though there were stars in the NBA at the time, it was like something was missing. We didn't have the guy, right? We didn't have the guy at the time. And then in 2003, we got LeBron. It's been a joy to watch his career in its entirety. I appreciate what he's done for the game. And I'm glad we get at least one more finals run out of him. Now, from a card perspective, it'll be interesting to see if he gets this title that everyone's been factoring into his card prices for months now. We saw the same thing with guys like Giannis and Kawhi. People were already pricing them as if they had won the 2020 title when they hadn't. So then when their teams went down, their markets cooled off a little bit. Um, I think LeBron can sustain that loss a little bit better seeing as he's got three titles already we kind of know you know what his legacy is to this point um you know there probably still would be some cooling but it's a little bit different situation for lebron but either way i'm curious to see what's going to happen i'm also curious to see how much a guy like jimmy butler will benefit from this deep playoff run some of you might remember episode 72 where i talked about a fellow collector's approach to buying and investing before the playoffs He constructed a matrix that considered Vegas odds and population reports, and he had five cards that he was really big on. Well, one of those was Jimmy Butler's 2012 Prism Rookie. So once the finals are over, I plan to have Tom on the show. I want to get his follow-up thoughts on his little project that I talked about. I really like the way that he thinks, and I'm curious to see if he would tweak this approach going forward. All right. Well, before I move into today's main segment, I want to take a moment to tell you a little about Fanatics. As you guys know, there are costs that go into running a podcast, so I've signed up through their affiliates program. And several of you have already purchased items using my link. Thank you. That means a lot. I'm still wearing my Pacers mask to work. No shame in that, even though they're not in the playoffs anymore. Whatever NBA gear you're looking for, 
There's a good chance that Fanatics has it. So if you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.tinyurl.com slash WMPod and click the Fanatics logo at the top. Shop as planned and the Wax Museum podcast gets a small commission in the process. It's a win-win. Once again, that's www.tinyurl.com slash WMPod. Okay, so last week I talked a little about sending some 1961 cards in the mail to get signed. And Bob Slick Leonard was one of the first to get back to me. I've since received all of them back. And if you missed it, I posted pictures of those on my social media. I also mentioned that I was working on an interview with Slick Leonard, but I didn't want to count my chickens before they hatched. Well, as you can see by the title, it happened. And before I play this for you, I want to take a few moments to recap his career and give everyone a little bit of context. Slick is 88 years old, and he's been involved with basketball at a high level for more than 70 years. So quite frankly, he's seen it all. So he started playing high school ball in Indiana and ended up going to Indiana University after that. So he's born in Indiana, stayed in Indiana. You'll see later that he came back to Indiana In 1953, he hit the game-winning free throws um, as Indiana won the NCAA title that year. He ended up being drafted by Baltimore, went to the Army for two years, but then started his career with the Minneapolis Lakers once he was um, done with the Army. He also played a year for the Lakers after they moved to Los Angeles. Um, He even had one season at the end of his playing career where he was a player coach. After his NBA career, he took a five-year hiatus from coaching and even took a job with a company called Herf Jones, where he sold class rings. Well, then in the late 1960s, the ABA came along. You know, the ABA, for those of you that don't know, was a competing league with the NBA. You know, for a long time, they were considered to be, or a lot of people called them, an inferior league. Well, at this point, they were just getting started. So he didn't want any major involvement with them because it didn't seem like a league that would last. Well, the Pacers, they struggled at first, and in their second season, they started off 2-7, and and they sought Leonard's services again. And this time, he agreed to coach the team. Now, the ABA lasted nine seasons, and Leonard was there with the Pacers for eight of them. And they made the finals five times in those eight years, and they won titles in 1970, 1972, and 1973. Along the way, Leonard was a bit of a um, spirited individual during his coaching days. There are plenty of stories out there. He chased a player with a hockey stick. He threw a ball rack at a referee. He kicked a ball into the stands in Utah. He confronted a timekeeper. He physically threatened to fight uh, a Spurs coach. And as you'll hear later, he had an incident with Red Auerbach. But at the same time, this intensity often channeled into compassion for those that he worked with and those that he coached. And his players loved him like they were family. Well, in 1977, the Pacers had already merged into the NBA. And Indianapolis was on the brink of losing the team. Just the money wasn't there. And Slick and his wife, Nancy, organized a telethon that ultimately saved the team. So imagine something like that happening in 2020. So you can see, you know, this guy saved the franchise in Indiana. He's a real big deal. So he stuck around a few more years, and his last year coaching the Pacers was in 1980. 
Five years later, he joined the team as a color commentator. He started with TV. He switched to radio. And I actually listened to quite a few Pacers games growing up. So that was my introduction to Slick Leonard. I didn't know him as Coach Leonard for the longest time. He was just the, you know, the color commentary guy on the radio that we all loved. So anyway, he was there, you know, in the 90s. He was there for Jordan. He was there when the Pacers saw Shaq and Kobe in the finals. He was there at the Palace for the infamous brawl. He's seen it all. In 2011, um, after a, a Pacers victory at Madison Square Garden, he suffered a heart attack on the team bus. And um, I remember, I actually remember that because that was when Twitter was kind of coming into its own. And I, you know, I remember reading it on there. That was when Twitter was more news oriented and it was really upsetting. But thankfully he recovered. And the next year then he received basketball's greatest honor when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Now, even before he was recognized nationally, as far as the Hall of Fame goes, he was an absolute legend in Indiana. And I actually had the privilege of meeting him once, and it was a really exciting day for me for a number of reasons. This was back in October of 2016, and um, the future Mrs. Wax Museum and I, we had escaped the hurricanes here in Florida and flew to Indiana. We went on a little trip, and we decided to do a little bit of exploring in Indianapolis. Um, It was kind of an opportunity for me to show her some of the things that I grew up with while at the same time I wanted to explore some of the things that I I wasn't as interested in when I was younger. So there was some Kurt Vonnegut stuff. There was a tribute to Robert Kennedy and and Martin Luther King. And then the night was capped off with a preseason Pacers game. So we walk into this game. Of course, we get there early. That's, That's my MO when it comes to basketball events. And I see Darnell Hillman in the lobby. I'm super excited about that. I take a picture with him. We keep exploring. We run into Bill Winnington, who was there doing radio with the Bulls. Um, and, I, and I told Miss the uh, future Mrs. Wax Museum, I said, you know, I would really love to get a picture with Slick Leonard. And, and then I explained who he was and, and why he was significant to me. Well, um, at the time, it was no such luck. And we were heading to our seats, and we stopped to get a drink at the concession stand. I turn around, and there sitting on a stool, kind of behind a pillar, I just happened to notice, there is Slick Leonard. And, um, you know, I asked for a picture, and he was nice as ever. Um, He smiled. He said, get over here, boy. And um, just a very memorable day. And um, I always wanted to talk longer with him, but that, you know, that wasn't the time. And then I never really had a legitimate excuse to do so. Well... Enter the Wax Museum podcast. And I know some people, you know, they might listen today and they might question why I went so light on the ABA Pacers questions. There are a lot of great resources out there already that cover that period in detail. I can pass some of those along if needed. But I wanted to ask about some of the other stuff and kind of fill in the gaps in between um, some of the stuff that, you know, a lot of people already know. Okay, so now that you have some context for this interview, You can probably see why it was such a big deal for me. I'm really excited to be able to share this with you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today with Bobby Leonard. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today, Mr. Leonard? Well, it's a great day. The sun's out. It's about 75 degrees. You can't beat that. Yeah, well, I'm in Florida. You probably have a little less humidity than I do right now, so I'm jealous of you. On my intro earlier, kind of a pre-recorded bit, 
I tried to cover the the ins and outs of your career. You've been in the game so long now, so I'm going to kind of just touch on some of the main points today, and, and I'd love to hear your input. Even though I'm a big Hoosiers fan, I focus mainly on professional basketball, so it, it hurts me to skip over all the Hoosiers stuff, but... We're going to go ahead and start with your rookie year, which um, from what I have seen is 1956. Is that correct? That's right. It was a, a pretty interesting situation because I think Mikan had come back to play for a little bit and then he finished his career right before you started. So the team was under 500, but still made the playoffs. It looks like they might have been in a transition period, though. Could you describe for me the kind of the mentality around that Minneapolis organization? Well, at that particular time, Al, the, uh, and you mentioned George Mike, and wonderful guy, great player. As a matter of fact, he was the first big man that absolutely dominated the game. But uh, he, had, he had retired by the time I got out of the Army. I, got, I was in the Army two years. Uh, and uh, Baltimore, I was the ninth pick in the draft. And Baltimore, while I was in the Army, they folded. They folded, and so Minneapolis picked up my contract. So I went directly from the Army to training camp for the Minneapolis Lakers. And yes, we were, the uh, the Lakers had won with Mike, and in 51, 52, 53, 54, they'd won four world championships and we're, they're kind of in a rebuilding stage. So did you ever get a chance to see Mike in play, or were you kind of just in different parts of the country? Oh, no, I, I, I saw George play. As a matter of fact, I'll tell a quick story. George was a lawyer, and so he was uh, with a law firm there in Minneapolis when he retired. But our coach, Johnny Kumba, had a medical problem, and uh, he, he had to take a year off. So George came on as uh, George says, I'll take over for a year. And uh, so it so happened, uh, now George is coaching, and we drafted a kid by the name of Rod Hundley out of West Virginia. Had a big name, huge name. He was the first of three All-American guards at West Virginia at that particular time. It was Hot Rod Hundley, then then Jerry West, and then Rod Thorne. But anyway, we went into Morgantown and played an exhibition game. And after the game, uh, we had one more exhibition game about in a town. I can't remember what town that was. We had to go up through the mountains in West Virginia. And uh, George and I... (laughs) Everybody went to sleep except George and I. We're sitting up in the front seat in that bus playing Hollywood Gin. And uh, we're cruising along, and uh, right on the side of the road it said truck stop five miles. Well, those truck stops up in the mountains are few and far between, so it's huge, huge truck stops. And George says to me, he says, Bobby, he said, you think we ought to stop in there and let the guys get a cup of coffee and a sandwich? And I said, yeah, that's a good idea. So, boom, we, we pull into the, uh, we pull into the uh, uh, truck stop, and the bus driver, when he, when he turned off the engines, he turned on all the lights. 
and all the guys that were sleeping, they woke up. And uh, about that time, about that time, I blitzed George all the way across the board in that Hollywood gym game. <laughs> and I never will forget, his, this is his words, he said, how about buying me a cup of coffee, you're too slick for me. Uh-huh. And all those guys heard him say slick, and I'll be off. they didn't start calling me that. I'm 32 years old, and like I said, I've always known you as Slick. I've, I've read a lot about you, seen a lot about you. I never heard the story about how you got that name. So that's, that's, that's awesome. awesome. Yeah. yeah, now we know. So um, you've seen every NBA superstar then ever, because if you saw Mike and you've seen everybody. Um, yeah, I've, I've seen uh, one way or another, either playing or coaching or broadcasting. I've seen other players that's come down the pike in the last 60-some. Well, you know, the NBA started in 1946. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were some name players in that period prior to Mike and coming in, that four, four or five-year period. But uh, once Mike and came in, I, I, I pretty well know all the players from then until now. So correct me if I'm wrong. I think one of those guys ended up being your coach shortly after. Was was Jim Pollard your coach? Yep, Jim Pollard coached me. Uh, later on, in an expansion draft, I went from the Los Angeles Lakers to Chicago, and that's where Jim Pollard took over as coach. And so uh, I played a year. I played a year, I think, for for Jim. Okay, so let's talk about one more thing I want to talk about with that Lakers team, because, uh, you know, you'd only been in the league for a few years. 1960 rolls around. You're part of a pretty big moment in Lakers history that I would say a lot of people don't know about still. And that was when the team plane was flying from St. Louis to Minneapolis and there was a snowstorm and there were electrical problems and you made an emergency landing in a cornfield in Iowa. So... I believe, you know, you were there, um, you know, among other people, Elgin Baylor, you mentioned Hot Rod Hunley. When all of this was going down, did did you guys know they were about to make an emergency landing or kind of what was going on on the player side of things? Well, we're, uh, you know, all the electrical equipment went out on the takeoff from St. Louis. We're in a DC-3, thank goodness. And we had about 20 people on board, 20 to 20 somewhere between 20 and 25. And we're sitting there, and I was sitting next to Tommy Hawkins, who played at Notre Dame. And uh, Tommy and I were sitting there, and it started started getting real cold in the plane. So we held up to the front there. We were only sitting a couple seats back from from where the pilots were, and uh, they had the pilot door open. We said, turn on the heat. (laughs) And they said, there is no heat. So up over top in those old DC-3s that were very, very popular, Kyle, in World War II. The DC-3 was uh, was a lifesaver. But anyway, we put a blanket over us and we start to trip. Well, ordinarily, in a DC-3, the flight from St. Louis to Minneapolis is about an hour in 10, 12, 15 minutes. We were in the air for five hours and a half. Oh, man. We got caught in a big snowstorm. 
the pilots, uh, as a matter of fact, one of the pilots uh, had to stick his head out the window, the co-pilot, to scrape the ice off the windows. And uh, he got frostbite from that. Hmm. But uh, we're flying around up there. We are lost. We're lost in a snowstorm. And uh, all of a sudden, you hear the pilots say, we're we're going to have to find something. We're going to have to find something because we're running out of gas. And so they're flying and flying and flying. And all of a sudden, the moon comes out. The snow stops. And the moon comes out up there, and it was it was just a, the weirdest feeling. But at about that time, or just a little bit later than when the moon came out and the snow stopped, we they saw a town, and that town was Carroll, Iowa. And it was about by then it was about two o'clock in the morning, and we start buzzing around that town. Because they're going to have to land someplace because we're running out, we're out of gas. So they 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 were flying about 200 feet. All of a sudden, you look down there because it was light out now. You look down there, and all the lights in town start coming on. And then you saw the red lights, which <laughs> you know was the fire, the one maybe the one fire truck they had in town, and and uh, any red light they had in Carolina came on. And uh, the, the town lit up. The people knew that we were flying, flying so low that they knew something was up there. The, all of a sudden, the pilots, I heard them say, there's a cornfield down there. And the snow had drifted. See, you couldn't read the terrain. The snow had drifted so high that it was hard to tell, although the shucks were still up. But see, the, 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 the snow had drifted in that cornfield up to chest high. Wow. So they said, we're going to have to put it down. So there were high tension wires. So we went around, you know, those uh, water towers they have in small towns. Uh-huh. Airline on it. And we started going around and around and around. And all of a sudden, they said, well, let's, let's take a chance. And here they go into that cornfield. And I'm going to tell you, <laughs> though they ripped through that cornfield, the shucks, <laughs> just, you know, it was really, but the amazing part of it was, had we gone another 40 yards, the plane just tumped up on end. Had we gone another 40 yards, there was a deep ravine. And had that happened, you know what the story would have been. Right. And uh, got out of that daggone thing. When the guys were so happy, they opened that back door, and we're jumping out into that cornfield. <laughs> snow up to our waist. We're throwing snowballs at each other. Those cars were parked on the, on the highway about about two blocks two blocks from where the plane was, and we waded through there. And I rode into town in a, in a hearse, wow. and uh, <laughs> went into a little little town. Uh, it had a little, a little uh, retirement hotel, and uh, we we get out, and we go into the lobby of that little retirement hotel. And here's all these uh, old folks in there with their nightgowns on, and they wanted to see what the heck was going on. <laughs> and I never will forget this one thing. 
They had a little bar in there, seat about six people. It was locked up for the night. And Larry Faust, our that big center we had, he went behind that bar and he ripped it. He took hold of that and ripped that that padlock off of there. Got a bottle of whiskey, poured himself <laughs> a big glass, and started drinking it right down. I never will forget that. The story of the plane crash and I. You know, after you ride into town alive in a hearse, I think you can pretty much do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did escape. I did escape, and uh, there were a lot of guys, you know, guys are scared to death, you know. There's no question about it. Right. But they're knowing that something's going to happen, and like I said, you, they turned an hour and ten minute flight into five and a half hours and lost in a snowstorm, and that's no fun. That's incredible. Well, let's. Um, I do want to talk a little bit more about your time with the Lakers. This is, after all, I, I do talk some about basketball cards on here. That's not all of what I do, but you had two cards from your playing days, and this is when basketball cards weren't common. They, they just, honestly, they just weren't selling, so they weren't making a lot of them. You know, I'm sure you see these two cards in the mail all the time. Uh, I know you just signed a 1961 Packers card for me, but you've got your 57 Lakers rookie because they do the rookie year after your playing year, and then the 61 Packers card. Then there's, then there's the, uh, well, I I get so much of that stuff in the mail. <laughs> I, get, I get it from China, France. Uh, there's also a Los Angeles Laker card. Uh-huh. I was on the first Los Angeles Laker team, 1960. Okay. I've seen that one, and I know I've sent you a, uh, there's a Pacers team card. I think Billy Keller's sitting on the rim or something like that, It's and the whole team's there. So, well, let's talk about the two cards that you're featured on. Do you remember anything about the process of those photos? I mean, did they even tell you, hey, we're using these for basketball cards? Yeah, there was a company, and I'm trying to think of the name of it. Seems like it was Fleer. Okay, yeah, Fleer would be your 1961 card. Yeah. Yeah, bubblegum. They were bubblegum cards, and they they uh, they contacted us if it would be okay to use our picture on a card. You know how much money they paid us? I'm going to take a guess. I know they used to give baseball players in the 60s about five bucks. Is that right? Yeah, we got $15. 15 all right. I know the baseball players, they'd give them like five bucks and then they'd give them a catalog and say, you can choose a gift from this catalog. It might have been a camera. You know, there were all sorts of things. So they just went, they just gave you guys cash. That's <laughs> a little $15 check. That was the end of it. That's the last money I saw from those things. <laughs> Although, you know, in these, uh, Kyle, these guys go in like Dr. J and uh, some, a lot of guys I know. They, sometimes they'll end up going to these play, this, these autograph sessions, big autograph sessions, uh-huh. uh, like in Chicago, and these these uh, collectors come from all over the world, and they sit in there and sign those pictures that they have those pictures for hundred and fifty dollars a piece. Oh, I trust me. I've I've uh, I've been that guy on occasion, probably shelling that money out. So uh, you don't know how thankful I am that you sign your cards for me in the mail. So thank you very much. So you finished your NBA career around 1964. I know at one point you were a player coach, and then I know you transitioned to a coach. 
I've got to ask you about an incident from, I believe it was when you were a coach. And this is, we're going to talk about Red Auerbach, okay? Um, And I read a story from Terry Dishinger, and he said, Toward the end of the season, we played the Celtics, and they put a goon on me who tried to get me to fight him. Anyway, after the game, Leonard went over to the Boston bench and tried to fight Coach Red Auerbach. The Celtics had to keep slick from stuffing Auerbach's cigar down his throat. And... Just the thought of that makes me smile. I wish we had the video. Can you tell me a little bit about that and, and maybe what you were feeling towards Red? Well, uh, you know, the, the, they make a big deal out of uh, Arbach, and I, I, you know, I don't want to say anything. He, you know, he was a good coach, but he didn't win big until he got Bill Russell. Right. And if you look at the guys he had, Cousy, Sharman, Tommy Heinsohn, Frank Ramsey from Kentucky, he had a bunch of guys that are in the Hall of Fame now, but they didn't win. They were a 500 ball club until they got Bill Russell. And hmm. I was a rookie with Russell. Uh, and in the voting for rookie of the year, Russell was number one. Tommy Heinsohn was number two. And I was number three. But uh, in a particular game with Terry Dishinger, and Terry Dishinger was rookie of the year in the NBA when I coached him. You know, nobody talks enough about Terry Dishinger. Terry Dishinger was a great, uh, a great, you know, a great player. He was mm-hmm. a great player. College at Purdue, rookie of the year in the NBA. And we're playing the Celtics in Boston Garden. In the middle of the first half, our box sent Jim Luskatoff, who was his, like they call, you know, the, the henchman, you know, and uh, his, go in there and get Terry Dishinger. At that point in time, Terry had scored somewhere between, in the middle of the first half, he scored somewhere between 15 and 20 points against Celts. Well, Terry's going down the floor, and Luskatov comes in behind him, doubles up his fist, and hits Terry right in the back of the head with with his fist. Huh. And the minute that that happened, I've got, a, I've got a dear friend with the Celtics that was with the Celtics then uh, that, I, that I met in the Army. He was on the Boston bench, but later became a great uh, a starter and a great player. But anyway, I went down to the Boston bench. I went right by, I went right to Arbach. I grabbed him by the front of his shirt, and I said, you get Luskatov off of Terry Dishinger, or I said, I'm going to take you down right now. <laughs> Later, I found out my buddy that I'm going to talk about here that was a great Celtic was Sam Jones. Oh, wow. And Sam and I were buddies in the Army, and as a matter of fact, I just talked to him last week. He lives down in St. Augustine, Florida. He and I have played golf together since then. We're both in our late 80s. But Sam, uh, what, what a great talent he was, and I tried to get him with the Lakers when he was still in, when we were still in the Army. Uh, after they had picked up my contract, I said, "Take a look at this guy, Sam Jones." Well, they hesitated too long, and Boston picked him up, and you know the rest of the story. I, yeah, it'd be hard to imagine now Sam Jones wearing the the gold and purple. Uh, yeah. You know, we've known him as a Celtic for all this time. When I did that, they told me later that Sam Jones was sitting there laughing 
because he knew me before that. He knew the kind of guy I was. Right. Well, and I know Auerbach has said some things about the ABA as well, which, um, oh, yeah. which I don't, you know, I didn't approve of of everything he had to say about the ABA, and I know he was hesitant to bring in the three point shot, and and you know, there's yeah. dip, all sorts of stories out there. I was there. I put on the presentation. Nancy and I were in the, on the board of governors for the Indiana Pacers, then, and we were there. When uh, some owner of the uh, San Antonio Spurs in a meeting says, hey, Slick, why don't you make a presentation uh, on this three-point shot? And we only had one guy that was against it out of all the uh, out of all those uh, owners, and that, and that was hmm. our box. Yeah, he did. He didn't have much of a problem with it later on when he. Uh, was able to kind of finagle things to get Larry Bird, right? You got Larry Bird, Danny Ainge. He went after three-point shooters like you can't believe. <laughs> he he would sure hate to see things today then. Um, so now, you know, we mentioned, or I mentioned that he said he had made some comments about how it was an inferior league. Well, I know that your champion Pacers, ABA champion Pacers, they um, at one point did an exhibition I think it was at the, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was at the Indiana State Fairgrounds against the New York Knicks. Is that correct? You're exactly right. right. So how did the NBA, why did the NBA even let that happen? That's what I'm wondering. Well, they, they, I think they, they did it in a way, the way the feeling was in those days. We had just won the ABA championship. We beat Kentucky in seven games. They beat the Los Angeles Lakers in seven games at the Garden. The thing is, when you look at the ball club, uh, let's look at the let's look at the Pacers and the Kentucky Colonels mm-hmm. today in the in the Hall of Fame at Springfield. That Kentucky team had Artis Gilmore, mm-hmm. Dan Issel, and Louis Dampier. They're mm-hmm. all in the Hall of Fame. Right off of our ball club. We had Roger Brown, Mel Daniels, George McGinnis, and a guy I drafted when I was still coaching in Baltimore, Gus Johnson. Hmm. So we had four Hall of Famers. Kentucky had three. So they they thought they were going to embarrass us. So it came down to uh, you know all the, all five of those starters on the Knicks, which was uh, Dave DeBusher, Bill Bradley. Earl Pearl Monroe, Walt Frazier, and I'm trying to think of the center, played that seventh game against the Lakers. He, he was supposedly hurt. But all five of those guys are in the Hall of Fame. Hmm. So anyway, they come into Indianapolis. Bill Bradley gets up at a luncheon and looked down his nose at the boys from the cornfields. <laughs> <laughs> and that night, that night, Roger Brown said, Slick, let me have him. Hmm. Roger hit him with 22 points in the first half. And uh, at the end of the third quarter, we had him down 16 points. Now, here's the, the NBA champions against the ABA champions. So that tells you a little bit of that story. Hmm. Was was Roger Brown, was he, you know, I, I'm, I'm watching a guy like Jimmy Butler right now who um, has no problem sharing with his teammates, but when it comes down to crunch time, it doesn't matter if he has two points or 30, he wants the ball and he's going to attack the basket and he's, he's going to get it done. 
Um, I never got to watch Roger Brown. That's kind of just from what I've read and what I've heard. Not that everything about them is the same, but but can you confirm, is that kind of the mentality that Roger had? Well, Roger, Roger was a great player, a great player. Now, Jimmy Butler is it? Jimmy Butler is a, a fine player, an excellent player, but he is no Roger Brown. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you that right now. Right. He, he comes in late and late in the ball games, and he does make big shots. But Roger did that his whole career, and the thing the thing that happened to Roger was they the false accusations of being tied into a gambler with Connie Hawkins and Doug Poe. And Roger was false, and it, but it cost them five years of their career. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, Roger, Roger when, when the game was on the line, I mean, I, I can't even count the number of games he won. Well, and that's, you guys ended up with three titles. He's got the hardware, right? That's one thing that Jimmy Butler doesn't have right now. Roger had the hardware. He's got the three titles. Um, you know, we could talk about the ABA Pacers for days. You mentioned uh, Nancy earlier, your wife, and, you know, she was a big part of that ABA team as well. So I want to talk about her real quick. I've heard you say before that she was the first female GM in pro basketball. Can you tell me, you know, a little bit about what her responsibilities were? Yeah, she was. Uh, she was the first uh, at that particular time, merger time, ABA, NBA. We were in a financial situation where, you know, they they weren't going to be able to pay a bunch of money out. So Nancy and I, we stepped forward, and I said, "I'll coach the ball club," and Nancy can take take all the front office and all the dealings with the NBA and everything. And she became very popular uh, with the people in the NBA. As a matter of fact, the one guy that hated me really liked Nancy, and that was Arbach. <laughs> yeah, that, isn't, that, isn't that funny? Yeah, she was the first general manager. Uh, and then at a later time, she became vice president of the whole operation and general manager. So yeah, she was the first. Uh, she was the first woman, and did a did a wonderful, a wonderful job. And and I say that because the ball club was on the brink, on the brink mm-hmm. of folding. We were totally out of money, and Nancy came up with the idea with with some. She had a great staff of about twelve or thirteen people, which today they give her a thousand people. She had 12 or 13 people. They got together and they came up with the idea of having a telethon. Mm-hmm. And they went through the, the steps and uh, a guy that they knew from Indiana that had helped on the Jerry Lewis telethon, very nice guy, he said it would take at least a year to put, put together a telethon. You know what Nancy said? Nancy said, we got to do it in two weeks. Oh, jeez. And lo and behold, everybody in the state of Indiana and outside of the state of Indiana know what happened. She put together, she and her comrades put together that telethon, got the cooperation of the whole city and part of the state of Indiana, and they saved that ball club. The Pacers are alive today because of Nancy and her staff. 
That's incredible. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize when the NBA took on those four ABA teams, sure, they let them in, but they pretty much stripped them of all their assets and, and made it you know really difficult for them to compete, um, which then led up to that telethon. I actually was telling Nancy on the phone last night, I said, you know, I'm 32 years old. I can't imagine growing up without the Pacers. I mean, it's, I wouldn't even be hosting this show because I wouldn't be interested in basketball. I even, you know, I wore a Pacers mask to work today, right? So it, it's, <laughs> it's affected my whole life. So thank you so much. Um, I, I can't thank the two of you enough. So I want to talk real quick about how I, you know, came to know who Slick Leonard was. And like I, I mentioned earlier, that was growing up listening on the radio. I started listening to Pacers games around 1995. And you've seen all sorts of incredible things, and you saw the the Pacers' great runs in the late 90s. I want to talk about one crazy event that you were um, a, well, at least you were there. I wouldn't, I won't say you were a part of it, because that implies something worse, but the brawl in Detroit. And um, you yeah. were, you were there courtside with Mark Boyle doing your color commentary for the game. And it's my understanding when that started to, when you could see things escalating a little bit, that you actually got up and left the broadcast area, maybe went to the tunnel. Am I recalling that correctly? Yes, you are. (laughs) So I'm sure you probably have joked with Mark that you were the uh, smarter out of the two because Mark, on the other hand, stayed not only stayed there, um, tried to stop Ron Artest from going into the stands, and, and you and I both know how that ended. I think he ended up breaking his back in a couple of places. Can you tell me a little bit about that night? Well, you know, we had him down. We had the game won. Right. And with, with about 45 seconds to play, actually Ben Wallace was the guy that started that whole thing. It got started, and he wouldn't let it die, and he came right down in front of the bench and all of a sudden, uh, Jermaine O'Neal went and grabbed a player, and then this happened and that happened. And, uh, and, but and that, as it was happening, Ronnie Artest came and laid down right on the table with Mark and I. Laid right there on the table. He didn't want no part of that fight. And somebody back of us in the stands threw a beer. When that happened, I had already got up, and like you said, I went through, because I'd seen so many fights in my time, I'd been in many. Yeah. In the, in the NBA, when I was playing, there were there were a lot of fights. I, I'd walk through the tunnel, I was on my way to the press room, and when that guy threw the beer, Ronnie went, went right after him, went right over top, Mark stood up, and boy, he blasted right through Mark, and knocked Mark down and hurt his back and went into the stands, and uh, I had seen, in my time, I had seen fights worse than that. Uh, you know, it went down, it, uh, it cost us, uh, you probably know more what it cost us than I do right now, I can't think of it, but uh, we had them beat, and, uh, and we, we gave the game back. We, we got away with a win, but... Right. Well, yeah, it cost him a lot of other wins in the long run, though. It cost us. Let's put it that way. So you said you'd, you'd gone to the tunnel or you were going to the press room. Did, I mean, at what point did you realize what, what was happening out there 
after the fact. Did somebody tell you? Did, was there TV monitors? I had got to, I turned around, I started through the tunnel, and I turned around and looked, and I saw a bunch of guys grabbing each other and this and that and the other thing, and I went on in, and there it was on television, and I, I watched it. <laughs> wow. That's wild. Well, um, I got one more question for you, and I, I really appreciate your time today. We mentioned earlier, you've seen every NBA and ABA superstar in some capacity, whether you were playing alongside them, coaching them, broadcasting, watching after the fact. You know, let's throw stats aside for just a moment. And let's say, you know, let's say you're coaching again. You're Coach Leonard. Let's say if you could pick one player to be on your team and be your star from all of basketball history, who are you taking? Well, you know, I've been asked the question about the greatest player of all time. And my, my answer is pretty simple. If you're going to win, in other words, if you're going to win an NBA championship, you've got to have a lot of balance on a ball club. So I said, I'll tell you what, I'll pick out uh, six guards, six forwards, and four or five centers, and I'll put a team together and you pick out your your six guards and six forwards, and you put a team together, and we'll see who is the best. <laughs> <laughs> right. I saw the first game that was played between Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain. Back hmm. in the old days, we had doubleheader night at Madison Square Garden in New York. It was on a Tuesday. And the, the, the first game was at 7 o'clock, and the second game, the nightcap, so call, was at 9 o'clock. So you had four NBA teams out of the eight in Madison Square Garden. And the particular time we were there, we were in the nightcap at 9. So I set out at the start of the Celtic-Philadelphia Warrior game uh, because I didn't have to go in and start getting dressed until halftime. And it was jump ball, start a game, Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell. Hmm. Chamberlain got the tip, but there was a scramble. And in the scramble, Bill Sharman picked the ball up. Celtic guard. He was starting in. Uh, the Celtic guards were Sharman and Cousy were the starters in, and Sam and Casey Jones came off, came off the bench. But at any rate, Bill Sharman picked it up, got to the top of the key, and raised up. And, he, and Bill was a, was a very good shooter raised up for a jump shot, he got up in the air, and Chamberlain jumped up and caught it. And that kind of told you what was going to come. But in that game, in the first meeting, Wilt Chamberlain scored 55 points against Russell. That's the story on that one. That Yeah, that tells me about all I need to know right there. You know, you and I can say, Phil, we, we can talk about it. We, I, we can go back into to, to great players all the way through. You're going to end up with with Michael Jordan. You know, you, you're going to end up with Chamberlain. You're going to end up with Akeem Olajuwon was a great one. You know, you can go right down the name. There's so many of them. Uh, Pistol Pete. So out of, we, you and I picked six, six guards, six forwards, and five centers. You put together your team, and I put together my team. It'd be a heck of a ball game, I'll guarantee you. And it's so hard to compare eras, you know, with all the rule changes and everything. But 
for a guy like me, you know, I didn't see a lot of these players. So yeah, I, it always makes me wonder. I can't pick it out. And I'd like to see the person that can. <laughs> right. Well, listen, thank you so much for coming on. I had a blast today. There's so many things I've wondered about, and you've answered so many questions for me. Thank you so much. Um, I appreciate it. I wish you and Nancy the best. And, you know, thank you not only for today, but also everything that you've done in the past for the organization. Okay, buddy. It's great. Very, very great talking to you. You take care of yourself. All right, I want to extend a giant thank you once again to Slick Leonard for coming on the show. I hope you guys enjoyed that one. Felt like it was a nice little change from the norm. Um, if you like that, let me know on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. Yes, I'm still in Instagram jail. Or you can find me on Twitter where I'm not in jail, which is at Wax Museum PC. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. Shop through my Fanatics link and I'll get a small cut. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.